Today on Ag News Daily. So to go in there and say we need to have free trade with China, that's just being naive. And the president is absolutely right. We need to take a different course. Whether or not we should have gone in there alone um, is, I think, debatable. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, co-host of the Ag News Daily Podcast. We're back to the old crew, just myself and co-host Delaney Howell on the podcast today. Delaney, how you doing? I am doing pretty good, Mike. It is a hot, sunny day here in central Iowa. It is. You can hear the corn growing out there. <laughs> yeah, you certainly can. Well, another thing that shouldn't be growing. Listeners, we talked about this a couple of times this week, but it is still in the news. These are the packets of seed appearing to come from China. Uh, We've got the first real response from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, They have come out and unsurprisingly, they are warning Americans not to plant these seeds. If you get a package from China that is full of seeds that you didn't order and don't have a return address and don't have any labels, hey, let's not eat them. And let's not put them in the ground. Uh, that's basically what the USDA says. There have now been reports from Washington to Virginia. And in fact, I saw the Maine Department of Agriculture issued a warning this morning. Apparently, these things are popping up around the nation. I haven't yet heard from anybody who has actually received them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, basically, I, I'm seeing pictures on social media, hearing all these states make these issues, you know, issue these responses. But I would love to talk to somebody who actually got a package. So if you were one of those folks who received a package, package of unsolicited seeds, reach out to us. Find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ag News Daily, and, and let us know. Drop us a picture, and then, of course, send it on to your State Department of Agriculture, and they are going to test these seeds and figure out just what the heck we're dealing with. Yeah, I'm going to put a Twitter message out right now while we're thinking about it. Perfect. Well, what other headlines are you keeping an eye on? Well, another thing talking about things that should or shouldn't be growing is Palmer amaranth, which is, of course, taken care of by dicamba, or rather has been taken care of by dicamba. According to the University of Tennessee, they have been getting some farmers calling in now who have said that they have sprayed their Palmer amaranth weeds three, four, five times and are still not seeing this weed die. So University of Tennessee has been doing a little research and are now, this is very preliminary, but are now suggesting that the dicamba, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? solution, mixology, whatever that word is I'm looking for, this uh, current use, this current chemical is potentially uh, resistant. That Palmer amaranth is now potentially resistant to the current strains of the dicamba that we have in place, talking Fexapan, Ingenia, Extendfax, which of course some of those aren't allowed to be used right now anyways because of USDA and EPA's uh, jurisdiction, but they're saying that evolution is catching up with us and we're already starting to see this plant become weed resistant to these chemical formulations. They're saying it's not time to panic quite yet, but it is time to reassess weed management and figure out if there's a different formulation that would work to better target this plant, this weed. Yeah, I've got a feeling that uh, weed science majors have a lot of job security going forward. I remember when they were rolling out these new formulations of dicamba, and there were some professors out there saying that we could have maybe five to 10 years of effective full spectrum coverage with these formulations before we started to get some uh, uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Resistance. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of right on track, you know, kind of right at five years or or close to it with some of these new formulations and uh, resistance might be appearing. So yeah, keep an eye on that uh, Palmer Amaranth. Man, that is a terrible, terrible weed. It is. It really is. I think we've got some in our wildflowers at our house. Oh, well, get rid of it. It's going to drop 3 million seeds, Delaney, and it's going to spread all over You don't need wildflowers anyway. <laughs> all you need are perfectly manicured. You need zinnias and vincas and impatiens, and that's it. That's all a garden should be. Yeah, except wildflowers are a lot easier to manage because they just, you plant them, and then they grow back year after year, and you don't really have to do a whole lot to manage them. Except manage the Palmer amaranth seed. Well, right, I know. (laughs) After you have not got your your wildflowers. Mm -hmm. Speaking of spreading throughout the countryside, we have not talked a lot about this. It was in the news here for the past two years. We've referenced it off and on on the podcast. But this was the the ongoing drought in Australia. You know, when you think back to pre-COVID January, the country of Australia was on fire with massive brush fires, you know, frying up all sorts of uh, tasty critters. And... um, the good news is Australia has now had some rain. And so reports are coming out about the Australian wheat crop. And folks are now anticipating Australia as a whole to have a bumper wheat harvest this year. And this is starting to perk up the Australian ag sector. Uh, They're seeing increasing ag lending, starting to see an increase in tractor sales. And this is kind of causing the country to, to heal, at least in the, in the rural parts of the country. The downside is American wheat has definitely benefited by Australia not really being able to produce a crop for the last three years, or at least a substantial crop for the last three years. And it looks like that time could be coming to an end. You know, we talked to Darren just on Monday about how China was a SRW wheat buyer. And they won't be buying for us if they have the option to get that stuff from Australia. So thing to keep an eye on there going forward. Absolutely. Another thing we promised we were going to keep an eye on today was ethanol stocks and their reports that come out, of course. And so we saw, Mike, I'm sure you have this as part of your news package for today as well, but we saw ethanol inventory in the U.S. rose 2.5% in the week ending July 24th from more than a three and a half year low in the week prior. So we are kind of sort of starting to see production and more importantly, usage jump up, but definitely still got a lot of ethanol in the stocks, stockpiles. Yeah, Delaney, you know, you're right. And it is interesting. We saw total production increase. We're at 958 uh, million barrels today, or excuse me, for the week, which is up 50, excuse me, thousand barrels from a week prior. And that's substantial. I mean, this is the highest uh, highest production week for ethanol in 12 weeks. So apparently folks are getting back up there. They're starting to drive. And we're also filling up those stockpiles. So it's good news. The grind is increasing. You know, that's what, that's what we need out there to get rid of this old crop corn. Absolutely. We'll have to have Ted Seifert back on the podcast sometime soon to chat ethanol. He follows this market pretty closely and can probably shed a little light on there for us to say, is this really going to do anything for the ethanol market and in turn the corn market? Or is this just more a matter of people getting back out there and we're starting to see maybe back to more normal quote unquote levels? Yeah. And, you know, knowing Ted, it is summer. I bet he's got his E85 burning Cadillac out there on the roads, chewing up some of that uh, that corn, which is definitely what we need to see. Absolutely. Yeah. It certainly is. 
Well, I've got some COVID news coming from south of the equator. Grains operations of both Kafka out of China and Bungie in Argentina have been hit by detection of COVID-19 among workers. And we talked about this hitting meat plants in Brazil and to a lesser extent Argentina here over the past month and a half. Well, now it is moving into grains operations. So Kafka has suspended operations at uh, one of its plants down in Argentina after 12 employees tested positive. Uh, they, they were first detected on Sunday, and now they've, they've shut her down for a while. Um, they said the shutdown started on Monday and is expected to last uh, probably, I guess I should say, until next Monday. And then they're going to you know, do some deep cleaning, make sure those employees stay home. They're going to do some new tests and make sure everybody's not carrying the disease. And Bungie said that um, one employee at one of their facilities tested positive. They are doing contract tracing, contact tracing to figure out who else that employee had uh, interacted with. And they're sending all those people homes. But it doesn't sound as though they are willing to shut down operations quite yet. But COVID not done wreaking havoc in the agriculture supply chain, Delaney. No, I certainly think it'll continue to wreak havoc for quite some time, Mike. Yeah, nope, I think you're exactly right. What other headlines are you keeping an eye on today, Delaney? I tell you what, I'm all out of news for today. The only other headline I've been watching is where these markets have been trading. Yes, and they have been trading largely in the red today, at least on the grains. The one exception is the wheat market. Um, Chicago wheat, at least, is showing surprising strength on the day. Taking a look at where prices wrapped, September corn down four and a half cents at 315 and a half. December down three and three quarters. Closed the day at 326 and a quarter. In soybeans, the August was off four cents at 892 and three quarters. November down one and a quarter. Closed at 886 and a quarter. In wheat, Chicago, September contract up nine and a half cents on the day at 533 even December up eight and a half finishing at 538 and three quarters looking over to livestock we see strength continuing in the cattle complex August live cattle up 55 cents at 101.45 October up a dollar 05 to close at 106.05 feeder cattle also seeing some strength August up a dollar 27.50 at 141.97 half September up a dollar 27.50 as well to close at 142.57 half lean hogs slight weakness today the August contract down a dollar 12 and a half at 5307.50 October down 90 cents close the day at 49 82 and a half. And we can't forget about the milk markets over in class three milk, July unchanged on the day at 2442. August, however, big step back down the limit, lower by 75 cents to close at 2116. Of course, one of the things that always impacts agricultural prices is trade. To help us make sense of the current trade situation around the world is our interview with Bill Bryant from BCI Inc. Well, we are joined today by Bill Bryant, founder and chairman of Bryant Christie, Inc., who has a very interesting background and backstory, and it's going to chat about a lot of current events with us today. But Bill, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for inviting me. I, I like this podcast. Thank you. We certainly appreciate that. But as I mentioned or alluded to there, Bill, you have a very, very interesting backstory dealing with administrations, dealing with the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, and starting, obviously, your own company. Tell us about your backstory. Well, I, I started working in... Uh, well, I went to school and studied trade and diplomacy and then began working right away in trade issues 
um, in Washington State on everything from, uh, you know, airplanes to agriculture to this new thing called software. None of us knew what software was. We all had IBM typewriters on our desk. Um, but uh, the agricultural industry saw some of my work and asked me to come work with them. And so for the late 80s and early 90s, I just ran around the world eliminating trade barriers that were confronting the uh, Northwest tree fruit, apples, pears, and cherries, because we ship apples, pears, and cherries all over the world and had a number of trade barriers. And I did that for seven years. And then um, some folks in other commodities, uh, some of the bulk commodities and, and other sectors around the United States began calling and asking me for advice on what they should do in Australia or Germany. And I realized there was a niche there for what I was doing. And in 92, set up Bryant Christie. Uh, James Christie is the president of the company. And we represent food manufacturers, processed food manufacturers, bulk commodity organizations, um, growers, and uh, uh, we provide them with services that eliminate trade barriers around the world. We also have a division that has some very robust databases on technical standards for food, which are um, subscribed to by growers and uh, trade associations and even foreign governments in the U.S. government. Well, Bill, I mean, from 1992 to 2020, we have seen some pretty big changes in the realm of international trade from NAFTA being signed all the way up to the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreements that we were you know, part of the negotiations and then not part of the deal. And now we've got, you know, the uh, the winds of change blowing again, certainly when we discuss East Asia and particularly China. From your vantage point, where do we sit right now? I mean, how well poised is the United States from a perspective of being able to buy and sell things with as little barriers as possible to our neighbors and exporters across the seas? Well, you're absolutely right. For 30 years, we have been working to open up markets for U.S. agricultural products around the world, and we've been successful. Uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which I helped advise USDA and USTR on and some of the agricultural provisions, is one of the most successful trade agreements. Now, there are certain sectors that have suffered, but overall, our agricultural exports to Mexico have increased, as has Mexico's to the United States, and we've created real wealth within the agricultural and other sectors in NAFTA. That's also true as a result of the Uruguay Round Agreement, which eliminated a lot of tariffs and markets that before we were not able to enter. And over the last 30 years, you can see our agricultural exports around the world has risen, and they have risen fastest with the countries that we have free trade agreements with. The countries we have problems with where we really have trade deficits are those countries we don't have free trade agreements with. So we've really benefited. Unfortunately, and in recent years, we've kind of pulled back and we have begun focusing on retaliation where we didn't seem to think we were getting what we needed to get. And at the end of the day, we'll evaluate whether or not that has been successful. But in the short term, uh, we've seen some fall in export markets or in exports to certain markets. And uh, I hope that is not a long-term trend, but my concern is the loss of market share in certain markets. In certain markets, we were dominant. And now, and we can talk about this with China, uh, those countries are beginning to diversify where they're purchasing product from. And if the United States gets the reputation of not being a reliable supplier, that is going to affect long-term trends, and, and that's concerning. 
So, Bill, it sounds like you're an advocate of free trade amongst countries as the easiest way to buy and sell and trade goods. But in the case of China, that's obviously not something the administration has been working towards, necessarily a free trade agreement, but some sort of agreement. How would you have handled things differently or how would you advise this administration? And maybe you are behind the scenes. We don't know uh, that yeah, for sure. Not, but not this one. <laughs> um, Look, China is a bad actor. And, and the president was absolutely right that we needed to take on China. And I, I think he could make the argument that we should have done it a decade or more ago. Um, I was concerned when we let China into the World Trade Organization that we were letting them into the club without them agreeing to abide by all the rules. I mean, if you're going to let members into the club that aren't going to agree to all the rules, why have a club? And I think that at the time, some people thought, oh, no, we'll just get them in. And as they evolve and their economy evolves, They'll realize how wonderful these rules are and they'll just voluntarily agree to them. Well, anybody who believed that hadn't studied Chinese history and it's all coming to fruition. The Chinese are not abiding by the multilateral rules and they want to follow those rules that will benefit them, but they don't have any real interest in an open free trading system. So to go in there and say we need to have free trade with China, that's just being naive. And the president is absolutely right. We need to take a different course. Whether or not we should have gone in there alone. Um, is, I think, debatable. I think we would have had much more of an impact if we had gotten the European Union and Japan, and if we could, Brazil and Australia on our side. But we didn't. And now we find ourselves in a, a confusing situation that we need to rectify really quickly. And other political problems are making fixing the trade side even more difficult. Well, and I think that opens up an interesting line of inquiry. When we're talking trade, of course, when countries are making these negotiations, trade is often treated as a separate issue from all of the other issues of geopolitics. And in China, as you mentioned, since China is in the headlines right now, we've got a lot to talk about with Europe and, of course, what's going on in Brazil. But with China specifically, with the closure of consulates and embassies, um, do you feel as though the A, I guess, can China afford to survive without buying U.S. agricultural products? And B, is that something you think the Chinese government would try to do? Well, you can say that, you know, maybe in the United States, we try and say, well, these, this trade agreement is different from everything else. But at the end of the day, you can't separate politics from trade. Um, a lot of these trade agreements that we've negotiated in recent years were driven for political reasons as much as trade. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, I believe, was actually as much a political as a trade agreement. We wanted to have what would be the economic equivalent to NATO in Asia. NATO was set up to defend um, the European territory against the Soviet Union militarily. The Trans-Pacific Partnership was a way to economically isolate China within Asia. Of course, we backed away from that. In China, there is, there's no way you can separate politics from everything. This is a communist regime, and politics drive every decision in China. So whether or not you can you negotiate an economic agreement, you cannot divorce it from what's going on politically. And that's particularly true when we talk about this phase one agreement, because I would argue that this phase one agreement was not an economic trade agreement. It was a purchasing agreement. And both countries entered into it, not so much for economic, but for their own political reasons. And any agreement that can be put together or is put together for political reasons can be undone by political reasons. If you have a trade agreement that's driven by economics, 
the economics on their own make sense. And so even if there's political difficulties, the countries will tend to stick to the economic agreement because it's in their best interest. If you have an agreement which is really founded on politics, then politics, uh, if they begin to erode that foundation, can also undermine the agreement. And that's what I'm afraid could be happening right now. I mean, Bill, you're mentioning the the economic agreements are, are a little harder to break down. How would phase one or what would a trade agreement have looked like if it was based more on economics rather than politics? Well, before you're going to introduce or enter into a, an economic free trade agreement with China, the first step would be to get them just to abide by the, the obligations they've already committed to. Now, to some extent, we did that in phase one. We get very focused on the numbers and whether they're purchasing everything that they agreed to purchase. But there were some uh, market access agreements that were part of phase one. And we see that on, on the livestock side, for example, and also on some of the fruits and vegetables that have already begun uh, bearing fruit, so to speak, um, and, and, and increased exports. But otherwise, if you were really to enter into an economic agreement, you would have dealt more with those rules, um, quarantine, sanitary and phytosanitary, how they do inspection procedures, a lot of the real trade barriers that are preventing us from having access to those markets, rather than just saying you're going to um, buy you know, $33 billion in, in products without a real clear roadmap on how they're going to do that. Now, I think there is so much going on with China. We could probably talk for an hour about the trade issues ahead with that nation. But I want to flip across the other ocean, look on the other side of the Atlantic over to the EU. Agriculture has for a long time dealt with um, different sorts of trade barriers when it comes to doing business within the EU. Ag in both the US and the EU is pretty heavily protected. And what's your thought here? Does the EU start to open up over time? Do we just uh, continue to make do the best we can? What uh, What are your thoughts there on trading with Europe? Um, yeah, just to give your listeners a little bit of background, uh, in about around 1992, 94, 96, when they were really putting together the European Union, there was a small group of people in the United States, say 30, that the EU tapped uh, to kind of give them feedback on what they were doing and how it would play in the United States. And I was one of the two or three people from agriculture. So in those early times, I spent a lot of time talking to them about um, what the U.S. agricultural perspective would be on what they were thinking about. And of course, that this is when we were dealing with the beef hormone issue. And while that seems like ancient history, it still continues to play out in how the European Union approaches um, agriculture. And it's very different than how we approach agriculture. And I think that's what makes it so difficult for us to come to an agreement on some of these, these issues, whether it's the registration of chemicals and pesticides, which right now the European Union is abandoning what I think is their obligations under the WTO to have a risk assessment, and they're simply removing chemicals that are necessary for the production of different commodities. Mm-hmm. They want to do that for their own people, fine, but if they begin saying you can't export products to the European Union, if it has been treated with those substances, then that's going to be a problem. Why do they do this? Why do they approach it differently? Um, because I think that if in, if you're in the United States and, and you're a farmer or a rancher, you're waking up trying to figure out how you can produce products that are going to provide 2,000 calories a day to the whole planet. We're trying to figure out how to feed the world. In Europe, agriculture is very much social policy. It's about how to keep the countryside pretty, um, how to keep it in small farms with hedgerows. Um, it's about how to support local um, food companies and bakeries, but it's very internal looking. 
And as a result, they come up with some very different regulations than they would if they were also charged with feeding the world. And those two approaches sometimes make it very difficult for us to come to an agreement. When the United States, when the, when the two administrations said that they were going to launch talks with the European Union and they were going to get that done by the end of the year, I, I, my initial response when I was asked was either it's going to be just a very superficial, not very meaningful agreement, or it's not going to happen. Because to seriously negotiate a free trade agreement with the European Union, the way we have with Canada and Mexico, would take four to six years. I mean, we started NAFTA under President Reagan, sort of. Then we really got going under President Bush, and it was concluded under President Clinton. It took years. And if we wanted to seriously do something meaningful with the European Union, it would take longer. Wow. Yeah, that is a very good point you make there, Bill. And I think that's interesting, too, to consider just that uh, the EU, EU's policy about, around food is is much different than, than the United States. But uh, this has been really fascinating stuff, Bill. We uh, certainly appreciate you coming on again, and we're definitely going to have to get you back on the podcast again really soon to discuss some hey, other let me, issues. Let me know. I would love to come on anytime. Well, Bill Bryant of Bryant Christie, Inc., thank you so much for joining. You bet. Talk to you soon. Well, Lenny, I tell you what, that was fascinating. I could uh, listen to his thoughts on trade a lot. So we're going to have to make time to get him back in probably fairly regularly, as long as all this trade talk continues in the global discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if he mentioned it there, but he's worked with multiple administrations on both sides of the aisle um, as you know a trade advisor, part of the USTR. So he's definitely got his finger on the pulse of the trade scene. You bet. And that's what we like to do. We like to keep our finger on the pulse of what's happening in agriculture. And if you've missed any of those heartbeats of podcast episodes, sorry, that metaphor was getting stretched, <laughs> uh, visit our website. Go to agnewsdaily.com. You can check out all of our past episodes as well as get connected with the other podcasters who are part of the Global Ag Network and interact with us on social media. As we mentioned earlier, if you're getting seeds from China, we want to hear about it. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.